now. Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi. Hello to Boo Boo. Hello to Scooby Doo. Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? Um, I did see though there was a headline that was like, you know, how do I talk to my kid about Santa this year? And I was like, oh right. We've taught all these little kids that other people outside the household are not allowed to enter the home. But Santa? How are the kids going to reconcile Santa coming down the chimney if they can't see Grandma and Grandpa? Just tell them this year's like no other and shut up and enjoy your presents. Yeah. Also, Santa's not real. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry for anyone listening to this who didn't know that. Hate to be the one to have to break that to you. And much like Santa, Tiff isn't real either. (laughs) Tiff was never real. Santa was real. Santa was a real person. Before he got frozen into the ice up at the North Pole, Tiff Tiff could also be frozen into ice at the North Pole, technically, I guess. That's what happens when she goes outside to walk the dog. That's what happened. Tiff froze to death while walking Penny. Um, So she's not on tonight. Very sad. Rest in peace. We were going to have her cremated, but... We can't find her body. We can't find her body. She's frozen in the ice. Just like Lou Ayers in The Omen 2. She froze. Froze in the harsh Canadian winter. <laughs> oh, what a shame. So you just stuck with us. Another gruesome twosome today. Uh, and what a gruesome twosome it is. We've been fighting a losing battle against the insects for 15 years. But I never thought I'd see the final face-off in my lifetime. And I never dreamed that it would turn out to be the bees. They've always been our friends. Um, hello everybody, welcome to What's in the Basket podcast. I am Amelia and I'm joined by Candace. Hello. So today we're doing 1978's disaster horror film, The Swarm. Which I know you've all been very excited for. <laughs> On the edge of your seat, waiting for us to do this. Now, I'll admit, disaster film is my favourite genre of film. Like, it's a bold thing to say but man they just never fucking disappoint uh yeah i'd have to say i i I agree especially this particular incarnation this wave um the the star-studded big uh spectacle you know mid to late 70s this is like my jam this is my whole thing i just love the idea every single one of these movies just, just putting something like 20th century fox just deeper and deeper and deeper in debt until they have to wait for a star war Oh, this one was Warner Brothers, so... Yeah, because uh, actually, you know, what I find interesting about this one is that because it's so late in the cycle, and this is something that's become so passe by 1978, it it definitely has that, you know, it's just too little, too late. That's a song. I mean, but they, they, they went ahead and did it anyway, which is kind of like us in this podcast, still persisting, even though there's waning interest. (laughs) And um, And minimal fiscal financial return. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
at least we're not as, you know, this movie did cost a lot of money to make and made very little money, whereas this podcast costs almost no money to make. Just time and effort. And um, effort, yeah. Effort is the big one. Yeah. Which, you know, as Mostly on Tiff's ever, part. Ever diminishing supply <laughs> as the year draws to a close. That's so, very true. Well, I, I gotta tell you, there's someone who puts a lot of effort into his work, and uh, in this movie, it's Michael Caine. He... Well, I thought you were going to say Henry Fonda. And... <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No, in this movie, uh, Michael Caine is a very passionate man. What you ask, is he passionate about? Is it, you know, like any other Michael Caine movie, is it about a woman? Is it about art? Is it about the thrill of the chase? No, it's about the American honeybee. <laughs> Michael Caine plays a bee expert, bee scientist. B-Man. A B-Man. B-Man. Bees, bees, millions of bees. And um, he has been kind of staked out, I guess, near this military complex somewhere in rural Texas, waiting for what he believes is about to be a, a massive uh, critical yeah, species eradication level like event involving bees. Yeah. Yeah. And like the opening to this film is pretty sick. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's this group of soldiers entering this missile base. There's obviously signs of some kind of struggle that's happened and everybody inside there is dead. You know, big warning signs are flashing up on the computer screens and they, they're they like, well, something has happened here, but we can't possibly know what. There's no sign of what could have possibly happened. And they get in touch with their general, who is played by our friend Richard Woodmark. Friend of the pod. Um, friend of the pod. And I'll just say Richard Woodmark is not having anyone's shit in this movie. Whitmark doesn't even seem to be very fond of his right-hand man, Bradford Dillman, with whom he spends about 85% of his screen time. And they have kind of a little bit of like a um, a Burns and Smithers type relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Like Dillman's always trying to like, you know, make a point, especially when it comes to Michael Caine. He's always trying to like denigrate Michael Caine to look good, you know, in, in Whitmark's eyes. But Whitmark is just not going to take him out back and have a catch. Dear Chase, I feel like I can call you Chase because you and me are so much alike. Really, I would love to meet you someday. It would be great to have a catch. I know I can't throw as fast as you, but I think you would be impressed with my speed. I love your hair. You run fast. Did you have a good relationship with your father? Me neither. <laughs> truly does not care. But yeah, after they, uh, Dillman contacts Widmark, um, they find a van parked on the base, and that is Michael Caine's van. Yes. Now, this van appears to be, it's like a yellowish-brown ochre. Is it the, is that the name of the color? Yeah, I'd say you could describe it as ochre. Uh, like a Ford Econoline with the like polyester curtain separating um, the cab from where the magic happens. And, and by magic, we mean bee science. Bee science. I know Michael Caine's just been living in the van, waiting for the bees to show up. You know, like... That is the insinuation that he's just... This is his life. And I find that very odd. And I find that very difficult to believe because... Also, can we talk about his outfit the entire movie? Oh, yeah. He is dressed like an uneducated Hollywood person's idea of what a smart person dresses like. <laughs> Um, well, he's dressed in, essentially, it's like a camel jumpsuit. Yeah. Like safari suit kind of thing. 
but like a brown turtleneck underneath. And he's got a tweed jacket and it has uh, leather elbow patches. Elbow patches yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's got sort of these like lovely finger waves. Yeah, he's got the Marcel waves. Yeah. In his hair. Like he's, for living in a van, he's pretty well turned out. But yeah, it's just an odd thing. One, you got to get all undressed if you want to go to the toilet because you're in that jumpsuit. And two, what scientist would dress like that, even in 1978? It also just seems really hot if you're living in a van in Texas. Absolutely everybody is sweating in this movie. It's a very sweaty movie. (laughs) Everybody is sweating. Yeah. No, I I was thinking about that because I'm like, because Catherine Ross always has kind of like that dewy, cool girl thing going on, you know, like, oh, it's just my natural sheen because I'm just, you know, America's sweetheart, Catherine Ross. But everyone looks like that. Like, Jose Ferreira looks like that. And he's not America's sweetheart. So, yeah. <laughs> could be to someone. It, it, also, the fact that Bradford Dillman keeps, like, he has to say the name, like, Bradford Crane, which I think is really funny. I, I was, it's like, I don't know. That's always funny to me when somebody, it's like, hey, that's you. That's your name. And then, uh, also, oh. another thing that's really cool about this movie is that everyone's name is virtually exactly the same. They're completely indistinguishable. The Michael Caine character is called um, Dr. Crane. And then the Henry Fonda character is called Dr. Crim. And the Catherine Ross character is named, like, Captain Anderson. And the Jose Ferrer character is called Dr. Andrews. There's also, like, 200 characters in this film. So it's very hard to follow along. Yes. It's impossible. Um, I mean, but it doesn't really diminish the enjoyment of this film. I know there's a lot of criticism about this being one of the worst movies ever made. And once again... Everybody except us is wrong. Yes, it's one of the best movies ever made, actually. It just keeps, it's like cavalcade. Everything keeps coming and happening all the time. Yes. So anyway, they've basically apprehended Crane, uh, Michael Caine, and they're like, what the hell is going on? Who are you? Why are you here? And Michael Caine is just like, well, it's bees. <laughs> He's literally like, it's bees. Bees did this. Bees did this. <laughs> and obviously... They're just like, um, I don't know if I believe that. Um, especially Woodmark, he's just like, he's not having it. For like, probably like 75% of this movie, he does not believe. Like, even after demonstrated evidence, he's like, I don't know if bees can do all this. But then, you know, Catherine Ross shows up and she's like, he's right. I I can't do the Catherine Ross voice. He's right. I've I've read it in the medical journal. This is Dr. Anderson, sir. She managed to get six missile men into the hospital bunker and close the interlock in time to isolate them. Two of them are dead. The other four are still critical. I need antitoxins. I have cardiopep compound in my van. Cardiopep? I just read an article in the medical journal about cardiopep by some scientist named Crane, I think. Our preliminary results are most encouraging. Your Crane? Yes. The medical journal? And then, okay, what she elaborates on a past experience that she and some of the other people at the base have had involving bees. And she, like, talks about how she had to shimmy through an air conditioning duct to escape the bees. And I'm like, is there a reason why we didn't show this? Besides budget and time constraints? <laughs> I was going to say budget. It was... It's like, also, the, the thing is, though, it's like, they're not just normal bees. They're African killer bees. Yes. I don't know, like whether that's a real thing or not but i believe the african bees are fairly lethal but i don't think when you're dying of one of their stings you look up and you hallucinate one (laughs) that's the size of a macy's thanksgiving day parade (laughs) balloon 
which is what happens in this movie. Yeah, there there is a lot of questionable science. I mean, the fact that Michael Caine was, what, allegedly an Oxford-educated scientist? Just not believable. Simply not believable. Why is he living in a van? How do you study bees living in a van in Texas? Why are you wearing tweed if you live in a van in Texas? How did you get in this country? <laughs> There's a lot of questions. And the thing is, like, they do a background check. Like, they, they're like, oh, you know, we'll contact Washington to see this guy's credentials. Washington get back to them in, like, 45 minutes of being like, oh, yes, the president said now Michael Caine is in charge of this operation because, like... Apparently, Jimmy Carter like knows him personally. Jimmy Carter's up to like, date on the like, bee science, man. He he's got his little well, eye. It's like Jimmy Carter's just like, oh, you know, I could be in charge of this situation, but you know, Iran <laughs> things are going pretty wrong. So I better leave this to my good friend Michael Caine. Um, he's a good guy. He lives in a van. I know him. You know. <laughs> yeah. No. It, this movie definitely has an approach where it's. It, it almost feels like when we did Whirlpool and it's like, wow, huh? This movie definitely thinks of um, hypnotism as being like much more relevant to everyday life. And it turns out that the guy who wrote it has like a big like hypnotism fetish. That's kind of the vibe I'm getting here. I don't not I don't know anything about the man. Arthur Herzog. Uh, don't know anything about him. He wrote the book this is based on, but maybe the maybe the man had a thing for bees. I don't know. But he definitely treats it as being, well, and it also could be, I guess, Sterling Sullivan who wrote the screenplay. I don't know. I didn't do any research for this episode because we never do for bonus episodes. They definitely think of bees as being much more crucial to the American, to American national security and defense planning than they probably are. You know, as evidenced by, look at the amount of, you know what I mean, like, uh, surreptitious like chemical testing that the government has done on this country you know what i mean <laughs> like like really they're worried about the bees yeah you know? it's like they're not that far away from fucking the ddt era like yeah <laughs> exactly exactly so you tell me that you know and that's why throughout the movie you know all these people are like michael Caine's like you can't do that it'll kill off the bees and it's like like the, they kill off people like the federal government cares about bees you ever heard of flint michael Caine? well he hasn't because it's 1978 but he should the government yeah they they're given a lot, lot more credit than they're perhaps due, especially when it comes to the level of technology they had available to them, because they've got this kind of video link oh, yeah. to the White House, which is a crystal clear. I can't even get that kind of vision on Zoom now. Yes, that's what I was thinking too. The whole my other problem with this movie—not a problem because I love it. I love this movie, but all of the lab sequences look like they're stolen from Westworld, like exactly like mapped out, <laughs> like just cribbing notes. Erwin Allen was just you know cribbing notes from Westworld the entire time, but nobody has that Richard Benjamin mustache, which is a shame. Well, actually, Hank has a mustache in this. Well, we'll get to him. We will get to him. Okay, so okay, so now, meanwhile, in the outside world, right? There's this family on a picnic, and um, the mom's looking like Lori Partridge. And the dad's looking like John Carradine. Very odd-looking family. And <laughs> they're attacked by bees. And the kid goes bad well, the shit. Swarm, the swarm. The swarm, the yes. The titular swarm. The titular swarm makes its appearance. Them. Yes. And the son sees his parents being attacked, makes no move to help them, and just gets into the car and starts driving away as best he can for never having driven before. And so obviously he's not very good at driving. Um, and then, but interspersed with this is 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 a love triangle brewing in the town of Marysville, Texas. Because the editing in this movie is insane, yeah, unhinged. Someone was like hopped up when they were editing. You have to be again. The cut we watched, by the way. Okay, this is the other little bit of a caveat here. The release cut of this film is 
like normal blockbuster movie length. We watched the extended cut, which is two hours and 30 minutes. And we didn't think anything of it. It's the only one you can watch now. Yeah. So if you actually did see this movie at some point and you're like, I don't remember any of this shit. That's why. If you ever saw this on VHS or something. This extended version on DVD. Yeah. That's the only one we got, and I frankly can't see how this could have been improved if it was cut down. So I know <laughs> that's the thing. It already, already, there's so many like plot threads and plot holes, you know, things that don't get resolved. I can't imagine this being at all any level of coherent without everything we said. Anyway, so back in the town of Marysville, there's a love triangle developing between Ben Johnson, who plays this like mechanic who's somewhat new to the town but also it's a small town in texas so new could mean like he moved in 30 years ago i'm not really sure what's going on fred mcmurray who is the local drugstore owner he's the druggist slash mayor drug kingpin slash mayor and um olivia de Havilland, who i believe is the principal of the local elementary school and who has is doing the craziest accent she's doing a terrible southern accent afternoon felix afternoon ma'am How are you feeling today? Well, now that you're here, I'm just doing fine, thank you. Nicely said. Well, everything's looking mighty pretty, Maureen. And that's including you. Thank you, Clarence. The wire and the pliers, please. Oh. Well, Phoenix, you think that rigging of yours has got to keep my banner up there? Clarence, just because you're the mayor of Marysville, that doesn't make you an engineer. It's one of those things where it's like you want to reach into the screen and just take her Oscar away. Rest in peace. Bad accent. Terrible accent. This is the, this is the first Olivia de Havilland movie. Doing a, that's right. Well, it's she the best died. Olivia de Havilland movie. Well, she shouldn't have, you know, shouldn't have made movies like this. Uh, yeah, no. So there's, you know, they're, they're, they're vying for Livy's hand. And we're like, oh, my God, who's going to win Livy? And we know that one of them's going to die, the whole thing. Yeah. And the key thing about this whole scene is that they're setting up for the annual flower festival because apparently this town is like flower city. They've got lots of flowers in the surrounding areas that they grow and have this festival with. So obviously it's a prime target for bees. And so they're all having this sort of back and forth, Fred McMurray's, Josh and Ben Johnson. And the thing is, Fred's playing this off. He's like, you know, I'm just a humble pharmacist. You're also the fucking mayor. So I don't know what you're trying to do. And he also looks really bad. He looks looks like like shit. He has had his makeup done by Morticia. He's the mayor of the courthouse square at Universal. He should be more proud of himself. <laughs> Such um, a bad movie. But, like, they're all chatting, and it's at this time the the child, Paul, his name is. Um, we don't care, though. Just, just kid. The kid. Be kid. Drives into the into the town, makes a bit of an entrance, crashes into a couple of things, and comes to a stop. And Olivia de Havilland is there to pull him from the car, and he looks very unwell. And so the, the boy is obviously brought in to the hands of the military, and they're looking him over, and that's when he sees the the giant bee. Yeah, this is a really good scene, because what ends up happening is... Uh, the doctor, who's played by uh, Alejandro Ray from The Flying Nun, is like, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't see any bees. What the hell is this kid talking about? And then Catherine Ross is like, there are no bees, Paul. There are no bees. It's fine, Paul. You're going to be fine. There's no bees. And then Michael Caine is like, reach out and touch the bees, you know. And it's like, reach out and touch the bee. And the kid's like, no, also, no, the bees. Also, Catherine Ross has some kind of attachment to this child. Yes. It's never explained 
I have no idea. Like, are they friends? They explain this like an hour and a half later. Like, they wait in the entire time. We did also forget to mention that before his family is attacked, we do get some bee vision. Yes. Uh, Incredible (laughs) shot through the eyes of the bees. So it's all like kaleidoscoped and and weird. It's cool. Excellent. I feel like Cronenberg ripped off a lot of this to make the fly. Yes. He should have cast Fred McMurray in the fly. Well, he could have, but um, Fred had made his decision. (laughs) I mean, how can you follow? I would, if I were an actor, and I am, uh, this would have been my last film. You can't top this. It's just the craziest thing. Like, this was the last film that Fred McMurray made. And he lived for like 13 years after this. He just—he was just like, that's enough. No one cut, it cut him another fat ass check like Erwin Allen. Do you have to remember the man was a cheap, cheap, miserly son of a bitch. The famous story about Fred McMurray being that like his circle of friends, whoever golfed the worst game had to buy drinks at the end and he was a bad golfer or whatever. So he would just leave before the last hole so he wouldn't have to buy everyone drinks. He would invent that's an excuse. Joel would do. It does. <laughs> if Joel... <laughs> had the mental acuity necessary to calculate the angle like like or golf <laughs> score i was thinking like putting angles but yeah golf scores that's true you can't add double digits um yeah so uh, the kids in the hospital Catherine ross bees bees millions of bees tiff you need to put in the clip from earlier we completely glossed over that where they're like one of the young airmen is like bees when the helicopter's getting attacked or whatever and he's like bees bees millions of bees thank you Bees. Now, uh, oh, this is when Hank comes in. Yes. Hank rolls in, baby. He's helicoptered in. Henry Fonda is helicoptered in. He's like, I'd say Michael Caine is the protege of Henry Fonda in this. I believe the Greeks had a word for it. Um, yeah, no, I, I, there's definitely kind of like a, uh, a protege, like almost like a spurned lover kind of element to this. It's very strange. Very strange relationship. Each other. Their faces are very, very close. So like, close. So like close. so close. And then because Henry Fonda is wheelchair bound in this, Michael Caine gently lifts him up out of the helicopter and gently deposits him in his his wheelchair. It's very tender. Uh, this at this, at this point, it's they they're like, oh yes, the war against the bees that we've been fearing is finally here. Like <laughs> it's a whole lot of that kind of talk. Which, who's we, you know, the entire scientific establishment or just Michael Caine and Henry Font? Just all the entomologists. They're all extremely well, afraid of these bees. But here's the thing, though, later on, spoiler alert, when we bring in Richard Chamberlain, he's like, guys, I think you got this wrong. And then Michael Caine is like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> well, don't Michael contradict Caine, me. I'm times the captain. this movie at multiple times in this movie, is just yelling at the top of his voice for no reason. Now you kick on your visual comm system and patch through to Dr. Connors in the White House. Arthur Connors, the president's advisor? That's him. You trying to cite him as your authority for being in this complex? Dr. Connors hasn't the foggiest idea whether I'm on, off, on top of, or under this complex. But I have to speak to him, and I mean right now. Lock him up. Yes, sir. He's yelling at Richard Widmark. He's yelling at Henry Fonda. He's yelling at fucking Richard Chamberlain. It just, he's so sweaty and so angry the entire <laughs> I time. I literally have Michael Caine yelling the phrase American honeybee, like implanted in my brain now. 
And it's just like, how much money did they pay him? But um, he also pronounces everything wrong. Like at one point he says, helicopter. The helicopter. General, I know how you feel, especially because of what just happened. But right now we are ready to drop millions of lethal pellets without harming either the population or the plant life. I'll support that. So will I. But what we need is every helicopter that you have. And it's like so good. And then it's like, and then he goes back to yelling about bees. It's just like, no, more of him giving odd pronunciations for words, please. Also, there's a little uh, gag plot. I'm not really sure what the purpose of it is exactly. Uh, I think it's just bad writing, you know, trying to lend some sort of, um, you know, character. Michael Caine has this thing about sunflower seeds. It's some sort of tick where he keeps eating sunflower seeds. At one point, Richard Whitmark takes them away from him and he has Radford Dillman like analyze them to make sure that Michael Caine isn't on drugs or whatever. And there's a line where Michael Caine is like, they're high in potassium, low in sodium. No, thanks. High in potassium, low in sodium. Terrific. As I said before, they're high in potassium, low in sodium. And as I said before, terrific. I thought you were going to be talking about the Slim Pickens. Oh, no, Slim Pickens uh, yeah. losing his child. No, I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about seeds. But uh, that also happens, yeah. Slim Pickens plays the local, uh, the county engineer in charge of the water supply. And he basically is like, I'm going to run this whole damn town dry if you don't let me see my son. And then um, Richard Widmark is basically like, yeah, I'll take you to your kid. And then it's like takes him to like the makeshift morgue where Hank who I believe is actually eating sunflower seeds, is just hanging out with a bunch of corpses. And then, like, Slim Pickens, like, just is... He picks up his dead son. Who's in a body bag. Who's in a body bag. And they're like, uh, I don't know if you can do that. And he's like, I'm going to take my dead son. I'll take my dead son. (laughs) Tiff kept calling him his dead gay son. (laughs) Slim Pickens' dead gay son. My son's a homosexual, and I love him. I love my dead gay son. Uh, uh, but I felt it was very similar to us how we're going to be when we uh, break Mickey Rooney free from his oh absolutely cold dark me crit. and that chili um, it's a really beautiful moment actually and uh, Hank is just fucking squeaking around this is the other thing with this movie is that Henry Fonda obviously as we mentioned is in a wheelchair but no one ever oiled the wheels on this wheelchair so he just squeaks the entire time <laughs> I mean it's what he deserves So you still refuse to oil this thing, huh? I don't intend to be stuck in this damn thing forever. Like, incredibly inappropriate, you know what I mean? Like, they're having conversations about how, like, this is, you know, going to be a defining event in American history. And it's just like, squeak, 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 squeak in the background. There's also, like, a couple of really good shots where, like, there's one where they're all going into some sort of meeting hall to discuss, I don't know, Michael Caine's, you know, vision for how we're going to annihilate the bee menace. And, like, for some reason, Fred McMurray and Olivia de Havilland are there. Yeah, like, who invited them? <laughs> In this meeting. Like, yeah. I guess I guess it makes sense because Fred's the mayor. Yeah, but what the hell does Olivia de Havilland have to do there? Exactly. But Hank is just, like, he's just in the background of the shot past Michael Caine just, like, rolling. <laughs> just rolling. They see me rolling. They Hayden. God. Um, um, oh, by the way, Catherine Ross uh, always has a stethoscope on for the first, like, 45 minutes of the movie to remind you that she's a doctor. <laughs> she's a lady doctor, and also she's a captain in the U.S. Air Force. So what 
Widmark suggests now is like, why don't we just poison the bees? You know, like, why don't we use the pesticides we specifically have designed for killing pests to kill these bees? And Michael Caine is not about that. He's like, think of the environment. And it's like, no governmental agency has ever thought of the environment, ever. Um, yeah. So I don't know why that would preclude them taking this action. There's also um, a bit where Richard Chamberlain, who's been sent by the president, so I, this is kind of an odd thing because it's like they, it's like, oh, he's been, he's like one of Michael Caine's like coterie, and then it's like, well, actually, he was sent by the president. So I don't know if Michael Caine, I don't know if they got beef, I don't know what the backstory is here, right? But um, Richard Chamberlain. <laughs> is the only person in the entire movie who's like, well, you keep calling these African bees, and I'm not really seeing any link between this specific swarm of potentially mutant bees and the the classic African bee in Michael Caine, again, is just like, you just sit down. Sit down, no one asks you. Yeah, like, well, he's just trying to help. My, Michael Caine is, is the captain now. Jimmy Carter said so. That's true. He did say so, and he he makes it known. Everyone in this movie is just like like Richard Widmark is just grudging like the whole movie. Like, well, that's what Michael Caine says. Got to follow him, I guess, because the fucking president gave him responsibility, gave him jurisdiction over me. I'm the big boss, man. It's just it's good stuff. Um, so instead, they Michael Caine is just like, well, you know, I've I'll I'll figure this out. I'll figure out a way to save us all. But before he can put that into action, um, our little friend from the hospital broken loose yeah he's on the run and he's gonna go he's gonna he's gonna punch some bees right out of the sky he is about to go exact some revenge uh for his Lori partridge mom and his john carradine dad so he and his little toe-headed knucklehead friends go down to the park where the picnic occurred where the swarm is still chilling and they decide that they are going to uh they they rig up it's like a like a like a bomb you know it's like a firebomb yeah like a firebomb to take out the bees and, of course, the bees don't respond positively, but the kids, like, in a really, like, kind of like a Three stooges kind of thing, like, like leap under these, um, like, corrugated tin trash receptacles. And, of course, the bees are like, and then they just get, they, they're not, they are not gaining any purchase, so they yeet off back to town. So then Chucklefuck and his friends are like, uh-oh, it's heading for town. Nice job. So, I don't remember what happens here. I think... This is sort of when Lee Grant... Yeah, okay. ...appears in the town. Lee Grant plays um, a reporter from some sort of national news network who is going to be the first, like, big-name reporter to descend upon this small, middle-of-nowhere, you know, shit-kicking hillbilly town to report on this. She's there. She's got her cool van. She's got her cool bowl cut. And the bees, like, attack... Right. Well, Michael Caine, I don't know, he, he's alerted of the bees movement and he's like, everyone, the bees are coming, the bees are coming. <laughs> and like yelling that, like every, everyone's supposed to know what's what's going on. Prior to this point, I think we should also point out that Olivia de Havilland receives a marriage proposal from Ben Johnson. And she's like, oh man, let me think about it. I'll talk to you later. I'm not too good with words, but I am a retired master mechanic. And my education... Well, it's all in these hands. And I know you know what I'm trying to say. Your roses speak for you most eloquently. Thank you. And I'm mindful of it. Then there is hope for me. Oh, 
look at the time. I better hurry. And then she goes to school and she's at school where she gets another proposal from Fred McMurray. Maureen, I, I know I may not win out because for all my pretending I can't stand Felix, I, I know he's a fine man and he'd make a good husband. But I know one thing. I love you. I always have. And I'll always will. No matter what you decide. How lucky I am. Well, all right. I'll give you both my answer before the end of this school term. And Fred goes off and goes back to his pharmacy or whatever. And then she receives word, this emergency <laughs> warning, that the bees are coming. <laughs> this, this is my favorite scene in the entire movie. Naturally, um, she's alarmed. She takes to the PA system and starts telling, oh, you know, everyone, we've got to get inside. But really slowly. Yes. Like, as slowly as possible getting this message out there. Attention. Attention. This is Miss Schuster. Please listen very carefully. A swarm of killer bees is coming this way. I want every teacher and every student to close off whatever area you may be in at this very moment. She's like, while children outside, literally covered in bees. It's so good because it cuts from her being like, hi, kids, it's me, the principal. Remember me? Today is Tuesday. I'm having a good time. I just got proposed to twice. I don't know what I'm going to do. Hey, by the way, the bees are coming. And then it like keeps cutting to like these kids on the playground in slow motion being mauled by bees. Like dying. Dead children. Dead children. children. Dead children. And like Olivia Havilland is like looking out the window at these dead children. Like, and then she like does this like scream moan. She's like, oh my God. Yeah, and, it's like, great. Yeah, it's very. It's very good. That, um, that that moment of acting again is like i'm gonna go back in time and yank that oscar away from her um <laughs> it's a really bad disgraceful actually um everyone in this movie is bad though not to harp on live like ev everyone is bad in this movie by which i mean everyone's extremely good in this movie I do think Fred has some, he's got a little bit of swag that I really enjoy in his brief uh, appearances on screen, mostly because his pants are hiked up to his nipples and he's got like a bow tie on, which I find very sexy. So that I enjoy. So previously, like when Fred McMurray was like waiting in the reception area to be brought into Olivia de Havilland's office so that he could, you know, pitch woo to her, um, there's this kid like menacing him with like one of those big circular like rainbow lollipops that you see like spoiled children having like cartoons that are set in like 1905 <laughs> you know what i mean like that big lollipop and the kids like licking at and then like when the kids are being attacked by the bees it cuts to like that kid and like his lollipop like on the ground the lollipop being covered in bees yeah it's pretty brutal it's good um they really pulled no punches like they make films today that don't have this level of dark-sided energy it's really good uh, oh also because then okay then my other favorite part okay is that then it cuts back to i think this cuts back to at this point to lee grant right and lee grant is like not since the dust bowl has a middle american town been evacuated with this kind of blah 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 blah, blah. the people of town have vanished which isn't like 
there's still people, whatever, anyway. But this is slightly after the bees attack all the school children. So people have, people are leaving, right? And yeah, um, there's been an evacuation order. But previously, Lee Grant and her, I don't know, one of her other, her producer or whatever, are like in the van, like watching the whole thing unfold. Like, oh my God, bees, bees, millions of bees. And their camera guy <laughs> is still like on the roof, just like cranking away, you know, like Buster Keaton and the cameraman. And it's like, let him- Gotta get that shot. Let him come Gotta back inside. I, this is why I could um, never be in like the news media you know when you hear about people like reporters getting being like kidnapped you know reporting in war zones or whatever I'm like i can't no thanks i can do you're not that. willing to die for this podcast <laughs> i will end up dying for this podcast probably <laughs> but i'm not not gonna be not willingly unwittingly perhaps but so then they have to evacuate the town and then this is where we get this really weird oh wait no actually wait stop we gotta go back um to the diner so they're at the diner right so because um there's this local diner and uh, Catherine Ross has been stung by one of the bees. And Michael Caine is like, get inside the diner. And the diner, uh, Patty Duke works there as a waitress and she's pregnant. And like one of the guys who died at the beginning of the movie at the base with the bees, like was like the father of her unborn child or some shit. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, she's a pregnant waitress in a diner in a small town in Texas. Sad. And they are in the restaurant with then the owner of the restaurant. And Michael Caine's like, oh, let's go to the, the meat freezer. Can we go to the freezer? You know, like the bees can't survive in that, you know, below 40 degrees or whatever. And so they're rushing to the freezer. And then the owner of the restaurant, who is played, I don't even remember who plays him, uh, Red Berry, is like, like he locks himself inside the freezer and patty duke's like oh my god you know what you know and michael kane's like i i don't know and then patty duke's like he's so afraid you know he, he's so he's afraid of everything like he's a big pussy i don't know <laughs> like me and uh he's a he's a big old pussy i don't know what's gonna happen here so michael kane's like well we're fine for now because the air conditioning's on the bees you know whatever so then i don't know they take Catherine ross to the hospital to suck the bee out of her whatever happens but they never address whether or not the old man got out of the freezer it never comes back up i mean he's not the first to die and he won't and he won't be the last I just love that. I love that plot hole. And so after they've like evacuated the town, like they're walking and Catherine Ross is like, this town is so different from when I was young. And when I was the town doctor and, you know, little Paul in the hospital, I cared for him. He was one of my patients. It's like, so that's why how she knows that random kid. But the kid also does have a reappearance though, because um, he goes up to Michael Caine and he's like, I'm the reason the bees came back. Cause I tried to bomb the shit out of them in the park. <laughs> And Michael Caine, yeah. do you want to... Michael Caine, he's like, he like starts rapping with the kid. He's just like, yeah, if I was in your shoes, I would have done the same thing. And it's like, were Michael Caine's parents killed by bees? Then he's like, my, like he's like, my parents were died in a fire. Yeah. And, and, and he's like... the bees start the fire? Like, and he's like, so it's cool. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, cool. fine. I mean... Like he's and because as Lee Grant says, like two hundred and eighty or Lee Grant, which I don't even remember who has this line dialogue. Where like two hundred and eighty four people or whatever have died. Like this kid is responsible for. My kid's like it's fine because my parents died in a fire. It keeps on coming. The punches keep on coming. So you know the townspeople are evacuating, and they're evacuating on a train. Oh my god. Um, and Olivia de Havilland is awkwardly seated. With bo- uh, both Ben Johnson and Fred McMurray, they're all, like, sharing the four-seater together. Playing cards. Um, playing cards. Just like, yep, this is fine. And then Liv, she starts, like, waxing poetic. She's just like, oh, you know, something just doesn't feel right. And, you know, 
something feels wrong. It's like, yeah, Liv, you just saw like 20 kids die. Yeah, she's like, I'm never going to see this town again. I'm never going to see these kids again. It's like, yeah, because you're grossly incompetent, Liv. You shouldn't be at that job. <laughs> and then you think, oh, well, you know, they're going to just go away and we're never going to see them again. Well, um, <clears throat> here comes the left hook. <laughs> the, the bees, who seem to have some kind of higher function, attack the train driver and his technician, whatever it's called. I'm a sorry, conductor? A, the conductor of the train? Would the conductor be driving the train? There's the engineer and there's the conductor. The engineer, I think, is the guy who drives the train. Again, I'm also basing this off another Buster Keaton movie. Uh, <laughs> I'm not really sure. Anyway, they're both overwhelmed by bees and killed. Uh, and then, obviously, the train speeds out of control, like goes really, really fast derails and falls down a cliff where it bursts into flames and everybody on the train dies. Just like that. So we never got to see who Olivia did have on However, what happens though is as it's careening down this cliff, Ben Johnson goes flying out the window, right? So you're like, oh, so I guess Olivia de Havilland and Fred McMurray are going to end up together because Ben Johnson is obviously dead now. <laughs> and then Fred McMurray flies out the window. Yeah. And then, so Liv now is like, she slams into the floor. And it's like, she's by herself. And you're like, oh, okay. Strong, independent woman who's bad at protecting children time. She don't need no man, the whole thing. And then the fucking thing goes up in a, in just, in a absolute crescendo of flame. It, it, woo, you know, it's beautiful in a way. It's it's incredible. It's more um, challenging than anything I've seen in like Inception or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. That it really ch- that scene lasts for about forty five seconds. And what I really respect and admire about that scene is that a it's so action packed. B again this incredible visual of this train exploding. C if you got up to piss or get more popcorn and you came back, you missed it. And, and you'd just be like, the film would end. And you'd just be like, so what? We're just never going to find out. I have all the old people. Yeah. <laughs> um, Good. It, great. Fantastic. So. Incredible filmmaking. So it's like this part after this is kind of weird because it's like, this is Patty Duke who is pregnant with the dead soldier's child. She is in hospital and she has to give birth. But then she also falls in love with the doctor. Yeah, Alejandro Ray. And I, I was like, it was very weird. I was like, why is this happening? Because also the way it's phrased earlier on in the movie when Catherine Ross is talking about the initial bee swarm attack at the base, was that like, it was like a couple weeks ago or something? Yeah. And this seems to have only happened in the space of like, what, two or three days? Yeah. So Patty Duke is just, she's over it. <laughs> she's over it. Well, I also understand, you know, it's like some low level, you know, enlisted man let's be real here versus like the town doctor on a right probably is a better provider for her child so that makes sense you know what anyway so they that that finishes their story arc we don't hear anything more about them but the the kid who made all the bees come to town he dies um, as he deserves which is apparently something that michael kane knew was a possibility in that some people might survive, but they'll live for a bit, but then a second wave will come and they'll die. He should have fed the kid some of those seeds. High in potassium, low in sodium. Yeah, well, but the thing is, Catherine Ross at this point has been stung, and she's just like, well, I guess I'm going to die then. And then my friend's like, yep. Anyway, <laughs> and they're driving back to the base. 
Um, in his sick ass van. In his cool van, which it looks like they've been matted into this van. It really doesn't look real. And also there's a lot of really terrible ADR. Oh, it's especially blatant early, like in the scene with the picnic where the parents get devoured. It's just like, I'll bring out the potato salad. Thank you, honey. Like that. It's really good. Oh, and so now the bees, despite the repeated admonitions from all of the people involved, that the bees, they're just operating on instinct human instinct sean connery and marnie voice the instinct of the species or whatever uh rest in peace sean connery um the they're like the bees aren't smart they're just acting off instinct the bees don't learn things they're not like humans well the bees are just like you know what we're not getting what we want here so party time let's go to houston but the thing is though widmark is the only one who's like man these bees are like smart yeah and they're like widmark shut up Shut the fuck up. You don't know anything about entomology. Michael Caine is obsessed with making these, like, eco-friendly pellets. Yes. That um, will kill the bees. And they do not, in fact, work. The bees just ignore the pellets when they drop them. Whereas Henry Fonda, his area of study seems to be an antidote to the bee venom. That's what he's trying to come up That's with. That's what he's been digging around with this whole time. Well, Michael Caine and is apparently now apparently having... he's, he's in this alone. He's the sole person trying to figure out an antidote to this bee venom. Because um, he's the only man who can. And this leads to a rather incredible scene where, I mean, Henry Fonda has a l- much larger role in this one than he does in, say, Roller Coaster. Yes. Where he's in it for like three minutes and, and it's then he's mostly gone. Just yelling at George Siegel over the phone. So his big plan is that he thinks he's got an antidote that'll work, but he's going to test it on himself because that's a very logical thing to do. You're the the sole person who knows how to make this antidote. But, you know, who am I to question a scientist? And Michael Caine does offer to be the test subject, but Henry Fonda's like, no, no, no. What Hank does is inject himself with six doses of the bee venom because he's, he's like, yeah, you know, that's how many people have been able to take. And then he waits for, because like the, the method of delivery for this drug that he's proposing is, is similar to a modern EpiPen, which I thought was, you know, quite an insight into the future that yes, it would be an EpiPen delivery. They just did not have epinephrine. I did not pick up on that at all. I was, I just completely went over my hat. So I'm glad you're at least paying attention to this semblance of science in this movie. Yeah, because he's doing this whole monologue. He's just like, oh, you know, it's going to take like 60 seconds of people fiddling around in their bag and then they're going to worry about injecting themselves and blah, blah, blah. And so he waits that and he injects himself and things seem to be going okay. He's like, oh, my heart rate's decreasing and, you know, things are looking good. And Catherine Ross comes in at this point and she's like, "What what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, man, we've done it. And true to everything else in this film, he has not, in fact, done it. Oh, here's the four physiological responses. They're swinging from norm to some really spooky levels. They don't seem to want to stay down, do they? In fact, they're turning bad. All of them. Heart rate rising again. Oh, 130. 140. 150. 
heart rate starts skyrocketing he starts getting even sweatier and eventually he succumbs to the bee venom and Catherine ross is sitting there not doing anything for a lot of this time she's just watching him die and then um so he's died uh and michael kane comes in and so obviously that because of their special relationship he's feeling very distraught and he he crouches next to him his corpse and lifts his hand and kisses his hand <laughs> And when we were watching it, I was going to make the joke, oh, he's, oh, he's going to kiss him. And then he did. And I was like, man, this is It's weird. very tender and it's very oddly framed with, like, Michael Caine's, like, eyelashes and, like, the whole thing. It's definitely an interesting sequence. I just think this is so good because there's also, like, again, Hank's wheelchair throughout this entire movie has been squeaking so loud that we're like, oh, well, this is, like a, again, like a Chekhov's gun scenario. He's going to have to try and escape the bees in the squeaky wheelchair. And it's going to be like, squish, 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 squish. And that's just going to piss off the bees even more, right? No, that doesn't end up happening. The wheelchair just squeaks for no reason. It's just a squeaky fucking wheelchair. It's just a squeaky wheelchair. It's just the prop department couldn't get a not squeaky wheelchair. But to add to the drama, the bees now on the move to Houston on a path that has a nuclear power plant smack bang in the middle of it. So obviously, because, you know... A swarm of killer bees is not enough. We've got to add nuclear holocaust into it. They're like, well, we've got to, we've got to shut down. We've got to evacuate everyone. We've got to shut down the nuclear power plant. And I think is it Widmark? He's like, you're never going to get them to shut it down. Yeah, people need that energy. And, and Richard Chamberlain is like, well, I'm going to. And it's finally at this point we find one of the top billed people in this movie, uh, Jose Ferrer. He is the manager or the yeah, the manager of the nuclear power plant. Um, and he's like, nah, I'm not going to shut it down. I'm pretty sure my plan can withstand some bees, you know. They're just bees. And as soon within within like a two-minute window, uh, the bees invade the plant and, and kill everybody inside, sending the plant into meltdown and killing everybody in the nearby town. And so it flashes up on the screen like 4,000 people have died. So Jose Frey gets some pretty high billing in this. And he's in it for all of like three minutes. And watching him, again, back to the slow motion, him and Richard Chamberlain being pulverized by the bees. It's great. It's great. great And he's such an old man. And it's like, they're just dousing this old man in real live bees. And then attributing to him this whole like three mile island subplot that goes nowhere. (laughs) The nuclear disaster element. Great. That is for me a really great scene too. Because as you said, it's like top billing. We're like, the whole movie we're watching this, like, where the fuck is Ferrer? <laughs> yeah, we were just like, where is he? And oh boy, when he? he shows up, he puts his mark on this production. He does. Is it sort of at this point that Catherine... No, what happens now is that Washington is like, well, we've had enough of Michael Caine. Yeah, Jimmy Carter's like, well, he hasn't been doing very good at all. Like 5,000 people have died. So it's placed back under Widmark's control. Uh, and he's just like, well, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to burn those fuckers. 
So he, like, arms all of these soldiers with flamethrowers to go through and just burn the shit out of some bees. I don't know if that works. It seems like it's not enough surface area coverage. Yeah, I have to say. For the size of the swarm. But, I mean, it's more than Michael Caine has done the entire movie. Yeah, Catherine Ross falls ill again. So they're thinking this is, like, the second, the crisis, second crisis, Mm -hmm. I guess. And Michael Caine, he watches footage of the original attack. I don't know how he has it. Uh, yeah, I, hadn't, yeah. Hadn't looked at it sooner. I know. But he's like, he comes to the conclusion somehow that the alarm system of the base is what attracted the bees. Because the bees thought it was like the signal from their queen. Yeah, I don't know enough about bees to dispute uh, Yeah, that. I don't know enough about bees to dispute it. Sorry, this is phrased very strangely just in this article. Uh, is there the bees break into the headquarters? I don't know if the bees break into it. They just more overwhelm their headquarters where uh, Widmark and um, Bradford Dillman are and sort of overwhelm them. It's a very it, – this whole bit is in slow motion, like Widmark getting overwhelmed by bees and he's got a flamethrower, he's trying to kill them, but at the end of the day he's obviously overwhelmed by them. Somehow Michael Caine and – Catherine Ross escaped. Can I just say, we forgot to discuss the most insane Catherine Ross bit in this entire movie. When she's explaining how she knew the kid whose parents got diddled by the bees. And she's like, he wanted to be an archaeologist someday. (laughs) That was weird. And he would have been a darn good one, too. Paul was my first case when I was the town doctor. He wanted to be an archaeologist. He would have been a terrific one. I'm sure of it. Yeah, like, okay, you could have said it like an apiarist or something. Yeah. That would have been more pertinent. Also, like, who cares? The kid, again, how many people are dead because of this kid so far? I don't think he would have been a very conscientious archaeologist, you know, dealing with the, the artifacts of indigenous peoples or whatever. Can I also just say, I was looking through, um, I didn't take very good notes for this episode. I never really do. I usually depend on tip to remember what jokes I made. But um, that when Hank is coming off the helicopter at the when he is first introduced, and Michael Caine is hand-feeding him sunflower seeds like he's a little baby bird, um, I thought that was really important. I just needed to remember that. I needed to share that before we forgot because that's just such a crucial absolutely crucial well when we're, we're nearly at the end um really oh god this movie felt so long i don't it was yeah, long. yeah like it's gone with the wind long so yeah. michael kane and Catherine ross they escape and somehow they're using that signal um on helicopters to lure the bees out to sea and michael kane despite all of his like oh this is really bad for the environment you know we can't do this can't do that no problem with putting a fuck ton of oil into the ocean. The Gulf of Mexico. The Gulf of Mexico. So they can then set fire to it to kill all of the bees, which they do, and all of the bees died. Yeah, no problem with that. I guess because he doesn't care about sea animals, because he's a land animal guy. (laughs) That's true. He's only, yeah. Uh, He cares about things that could fly, but only if they're very furry and nasty. And there's even that line um, when Hank is, like, rolling down the hallway in the base and he's like, you know, oh, last time I read something raunchy and sexy was your article on the mating habits of the queen bee or whatever. That was hot. You still writing dirty books? Not this year. 
raunchiest thing I ever read. That paper of yours on the mating habits of Bombus Medius. Yeah. Those queen bees really are something. Okay, Michael Caine absolutely has is sexually attracted to bees. And that's why he's defending them above the interests of any other wildlife. Yeah, he's definitely really into the bees. Yes. And so he decides to go full X on Valdez to save the bees. Yeah. Which is really good, I think. Also, because we're in the middle, they're in the middle of like an oil crisis. You know what I mean? This is, this is the time of the gas shortage. Well, I reckon like after Jimmy Carter heard about that, he was just like, he's like, Shh. man, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Because he was just like, God, really should not, should have stripping Michael Caine of his B powers. And yeah, that's it. It just ends. It just just ends. Just ends. I mean, what else are you going to do? But there's like the third to last line or whatever is a really blatant sequel bait when Captain Ross is like, do you think they'll ever come back? (laughs) Did we finally beat them? Or is this just a temporary victory? I, I don't know. But we did gain time, but if we use it wisely, and if we're lucky, the world might just survive. Spoiler alert, they won't, because this has effectively killed off the genre. Merry Christmas, bees. Merry bees. Merry bees. Merry bees. There are, I mean, it's a great movie. I think uh, people were very wrong in their opinion that this is one of the worst movies of all time. I think just people don't like to have fun. I mean, any movie that has a massive disclaimer in the credits being like, the vicious African bee depicted in this movie bears no relation to the hard-working American honeybee. Anything that has to have a disclaimer like that is obviously a very special production. That's not an ASPCA, no animals were harmed. That is a full-on, not only did we definitely harm these animals... Uh, yeah. Well, there were estimates of the number of bees that we used. So the estimate ranges between 15 million and 22 million bees uh, used in production, with 800,000 bees having had their stingers removed to enable the cast to work safely with them. Yeah, about 100 people were employed to take care and transport the bees during the shoot. High in potassium, low in sodium. I have an excerpt right here. I have uh, from Richard Chamberlain's book talks about this. He made two movies for Irwin Allen. He also was in The Towering Inferno. And he talks about how The Swarm was a little bit of a a different experience. This is what he says. Computerized special effects hadn't yet hit their stride, so we used real bees. Thousands of these little critters were kept in refrigerated railway cars. The cold made them drowsy and slow, enabling a bunch of expert women chosen for their small hands to gently squeeze each bee belly and snip off its stinger. During our death scenes, hundreds of these newly revived but stingerless bees were poured over us as we writhed and screamed and at last expired in feigned terror and pain. Having those insects crawling all over my face and down my neck into my clothes was a sensation not easily forgotten. And he said that uh, because he filmed that that climactic scene, obviously, with Jose Ferrer. He said, uh, he's talking about Jose Ferrer. He says, he was, like most of us, a bit shamed uh, of being in this bee, bee movie. Very funny, Richard. No matter how much Irwin Allen was paying, one day, as we were waiting to shoot a particularly embarrassing scene, I'm assuming the death sequence, he said in a mock theatrical voice, Oh, Richard, I've hoard in television, I've hoard in movies, but I've never hoard in the theater. So, how's it for her have fun? Apparently so did Olivia de Havilland, because she was the only person that got stung the entire production. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. So, uh, this film is often referred to as one of Michael Caine's uh, paycheck movies. Yeah. Which, I mean, 
What a movie. If you're getting paid money to make this movie, I wouldn't be complaining. You know, whether it's 9 to 5 or shaking your ass, you gotta you gotta get the bag. And I love these movies. I love these movies. I really, I derive more enjoyment from these movies than I do probably 30 to 40% of the legitimate film appearances of the entire cast. You know what I mean? Individually within their own careers. That's like what I don't get. Like these movies that you can just sit down and enjoy wholeheartedly, they mean way more than any other kind of movie. Like I'm more likely to watch this over and over again. Yes. Than something serious. Absolutely. I mean, there's the other element here wherein this is kind of, yeah, it's, it's, sad and unglamorous and all those things but it but it but it's still an opportunity for many people who have not made film appearances in a very long time to kind of relive a little bit of that screen stardom for a moment and i think that's also really important and really fun like yes the airport movies are bad but do i love to see gloria swanson no matter what she's doing absolutely yes because she's I don't want to use the word legend, but she's a legend. She's an icon. You know, she's this 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 towering you know fantasy, this this grand illusion. And it's like I want to see her in everything. I want to see her when a when a plane gets bombed. I, I wish Gloria Swanson was in this movie. I wish there were bees with Gloria Swanson. So apparently, Owen Allen was really sort of disheartened by the amount of money that this film lost. So it did lose a lot of. It's like. A typical box office bomb in the amount of money it lost. Uh, and he was so disheartened by this that he forbade any of his employers uh, employees to ever mention it ever again. Uh, and even in interviews when he was asked about it, he would not answer questions and cut interviews short because of it. Uh, and I feel like if you're making this movie, just own it. Yeah. Just own it. I, you know, I, I get it. It's hard. No one wants to be, you know, reminded of, of their they're under Capricorns and they're torn curtains, you know, but also this movie's better than under Capricorn or torn curtain. So actually Erwin Allen has a much better batting average than Hitchcock does. I'm controversial, but I'm going to say it. Okay. It's true. We sat through, you know, family plot recently. Um, I find, okay, I get it. I get that it's, it's fun. It's cool. It's hip and it's sexy to denigrate this particular genre of movies because yes, they're ludicrous. Yes. They're stupid. Yes. They're aggressively American. Yes, they use up all of you know they 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 suck this air out of the room. You know they're 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 multiplex movies. They, that's what they stand for. But I I do enjoy and love the tradition of a movie that you see on the big screen that is a movie made for the big screen. I want to see millions and millions of bees descend upon a studio backlot and kill children. <laughs> if I'm going up, I'm going to the movies and I'm paying my hard earned money. That's what I want to see. I want to see children die. And they're afraid to give us that nowadays. Um, they're, they're weak. There's, they won't do it weak. now. Exactly. They just go with things that aren't really controversial. You know, things that they can pretend are controversial. You know, like Green Book or whatever. You know, they'll be like, ooh, we're, we're dabbling in controversial content with an extremely whitewashed version that will go out and win Best Picture. But we're afraid to kill children with bees. This is, uh, I thought, kind of funny. Uh, I, I don't know how I agree with this theory, but I do think we should talk about it. Uh, Devin McKinney in his book on Fonda, which is like one of the only star biographies that has like halfway credible literary pretensions, even though pretension is the op- uh, operative word here. Um, he describes the movie 
as uh, a harvest of shame, which I vibe with Mm -hmm. because I also think it fits quite cohesively into the narrative of Henry Fonda's life, which is just shame. You know, his life is a harvest of shame. So I think that is a good encapsulation of where this movie stands. But also he makes a point that uh, there, that disaster movies of this era are a backlash against, he says, the dark visions and small defeats of post-Easy Rider Hollywood. He says, the mass audience looks again to spectacle and star and surrenders to the engineering of movies as thrill rides. That the movies are about widespread collapse, economic, environmental, social, and that they're delirious wastes of money and resource in a time of inflation, pollution, and shortage. Which I think is a, is a good point. I don't know. I do agree that they're backlash. I think that's, I think that's, a, that's a fairly non- controversial statement unlike green book um and like killing children with bees <laughs> i also think there was this sense in the 70s that society was collapsing oh yeah at every turn like it was a i know people point to the 60s as a, a time of upheaval and change but it's sort of escalated in the 70s because like everything was going on like all the hangovers from the 60s were continuing and then you have the gas crisis, then you have Iran, and then you have, well, the entire Jimmy Carter presidency yeah. was mired by crazy levels of upheaval. Yeah, it's a constant clusterfuck, and Carter's not doing himself any favors. Yeah, no, I definitely I definitely think that the sense of, of breakdown is much more palpable in the 70s, especially on film, because in the 60s, there's still that attempt to save it off and to be kind of um, uh, a refuge for the center, which is what commercial filmmaking had become by that point. I think the failure of the new Hollywood, and then I think I think by 1978, I think it's pretty solidly a failure. Um, it hasn't really generated the kind of changes that the industry wanted. Because the industry was willing to go with, with the new Hollywood approach, the the, the small movie again. They were willing to go with the small movie, the, the narrow kind of narrowly uh, defined uh, narrative. They were willing to go with it when it looked like it had commercial appeal. And then once the commercial appeal starts to wane, Hollywood reverts to what it does best, which is explosions, explosions, and dragging out the shambling corpse of an old movie star. And making a dance. <laughs> That's what they did in this movie. And I can respect that. I can vibe with that. Because it goes back to that same thing point we make whenever we talk about blockbusters and really big commercial films. Is that when you look at something like this, like, yes, the story is just gobbledygook. And yes, the dialogue is awful. Reprehensible. This man should have been assassinated. By the way, Sterling Siliphant. Tip was like, that has to be a pseudonym. pseudonym. It's not a pseudonym. The man won an Oscar. Just important to note. Um, but yes, it's awful. But when you, I look at this movie, I just see the craftsmanship. You know, I, I see props. I see I see the women plucking the stingers off those little bees. I, I see the stunt coordinator. I, I, these are the things that I see when I watch this movie. And I can, I can appreciate that and I can respect that because that's the part of the industry. And I think this has, again, been highlighted by the pandemic. That is always the first out the door when it comes to the concerns of the people higher up on the food chain. You know, these are the people with very comparatively little job security, especially in the, after the collapse of the studio system. Um, I don't know. I, 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 for me, it's very hard to, to mock movies like this or the towering Inferno or the Poseidon adventure without being like, but what about everyone who had to engineer all of these shots? Like that's hard work. 
And they did it well. They did it fabulously. It's not their fault Olivia de Havilland can't do a Texas accent. I mean, it goes back to that thing that we always talk about, which is the craft of, of cinema. You can't completely write off any movie because there's a level of craft that goes into it. Sure, there's some that are clumsier than others, but when it comes to sort of these big, expansive genre pictures, the level of detail is insane. And like you said, sure, they ripped off Westworld for those consoles and everything, but they still looked fucking sick. And the train sequence on this was awesome. And I I mean, I just think that a lot of a lot of the problem I have with the narratives that surround, you know, like high film and low film and sort of what is art film and what isn't, it's just like, this is all bullshit. Yeah. It doesn't matter. What the academies and like cinephiles, if you call yourself that, well, <laughs> just, I'm sorry, this is not the podcast for you. But um, the problem is that they intellectualize everything and it's like, sure, what is intellectual to you doesn't necessarily mean that it's better than another film like if you enjoy a film then it's a good film yeah to you. you know that is the end of it and um films like this are often devalued because obviously there's no greater higher purpose for them other than to entertain but they're already fulfilling that i mean that yeah, so it's and like, if you look at movies that people generally um, enjoy and think are worthwhile, oftentimes the best movies have comparatively little to say. You know what I mean? Like, there is no great social theory behind Ball of Fire, you know? Like, it, we can enjoy <laughs> entertainment, and we can also commend entertainment when it's well executed. Is everything in this movie well executed? No. Am I comparing it to Ball of Fire? No, but... It would have been cool if there was a literal ball of fire that took out some more of the bees. Um, <laughs> but I I find it so disingenuous. It's like, as much as, you know, I, I love The Godfather, you know, I like I like shampoo, you know, I don't really like Easy Rider. But I, I enjoy, you know, that, well, The Godfather, not a good example for this particular conversation, but something like shampoo, I think is. I, I enjoy those movies. The 70s is one of my favorite decades in filmmaking. But... At the same time, as an American, I can also appreciate something that's big and crude and beautiful. And that just like it's just like a, a crumbling adobe structure or a poorly erected barn in the Ohio countryside or whatever. It's a story of this country. It's a story of something, again, that is big and crude and beautiful and dumb and stupid and awful. And that's this movie. <laughs> and it's my right to enjoy this stuff. There's a story that Richard Chamberlain tells in his book because I was like, I got to read the rest of this book. I didn't read the whole book, but he, this is a story he tells um, about when he was uh, in, in France. He was in France filming, and um, he is invited to dinner, I guess, uh, drinks, whatever, with uh, Catherine Hepburn, Danny Kay, and Federico Fellini. And, um, what a rogues gallery. What a rogues gallery. And so it turned into an argument because he says that Hepburn was arguing that uh, Fellini's just your early movies were just fine, straightforward, realistic. But then, like that crazy Picasso, you've gone berserk. I mean, that absurd Juliet of the Spirits, what on earth was all that about? And so then Kate just like finishes her champagne and just like wanders away, right? Because he says she liked to be in bed by eight o'clock. Me, I understand that. And, uh, and he says, watching Kate climb the stairs and disappear, Fellini said with a touch of sadness, she is afraid of the night. She is afraid of her dreams. 
And um, I don't really know what that had to do with this conversation, but I thought that was really funny. I I think there's a time and a place for all kinds of cinema. And I think to discredit one discredits them all because they all exist. And that's the beauty of cinema that so many different ideas can exist and perform in a variety of ways. Um, so the same story can be interpreted in a multitude of ways and like both visually, narratively, just doesn't make sense to me to, to venerate one style above another when it's like they all have their place. And you know, this is the point. That except for Marvel movies, they don't have for, place. Yeah, no, don't even begin. If you're going to fucking hit me with that one, don't even start. Okay. First of all, when was the last time you watched a Marvel movie that had Lee Grant in it? Okay. With her bowl cut, her little mushroom bowl cut. Give it delivering a line like, this isn't just a story about a family killed by bees. Get back to me when that happens, and then I'll watch your goddamn Irons Man's Bees of Iron. That's the point that Michael Caine did not grasp in this movie, which is that genres of film, just like species of wildlife, are part of an ecosystem. And the preservation of one, in his case, honeybees, in our case, the thinking man's small film, requires the preservation of the broader ecosystem. So you can't slime, in the Nickelodeon sense, the Gulf of Mexico with oil in an attempt to kill off the bees, to save your precious honeybees, because then you're going to kill off all the other wildlife. And I feel like Hollywood has this constant self-flagellating need to prune away at its genre offerings based on this incredibly capricious, like, public taste. I can't believe, I'm defending this movie as a, as a commercial picture, but also saying that there's no point in commercial filmmaking because people are idiots. I don't really understand what I'm trying to say here, but you get the general gist, you know, it's... Yeah, I mean, the gist, the gist of it is, this is a good movie, shut this up. This is a good movie. Um, good movie, shut up. See, again, I, if I saw this movie and I, I completely isolate, you locked me in a sensory deprivation chamber for 30 years and I came out and I didn't know who the president was and uh, I didn't know if COVID was gone and I'd forgotten about this movie, whatever. And you showed me this. I wouldn't be concerned with his box office totals. I wouldn't care how much it costs to make. I wouldn't care about any of that. I'd be like, this movie was amazing. That's what matters. If, if you took someone who grew up in the woods raised by chipmunks or something and you showed him this movie, they would laugh. And that's what matters. Because they understand bees like no one else if they've grown up in the woods. <laughs> Again, um, I'm sundowning because like Catherine Hepburn, I prefer being in bed by 8 o'clock. Uh, um, well, what we can say about this movie is that uh, it was the first hit of the death knell for disaster movies of the 70s, followed by Owen Allen's own attempts what are they, the Poseidon Adventure sequel, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, and When Time Ran Out in 1980, which really sort of killed off that until we get kind of a resurgence in the 90s. Yeah, it which, takes a while. Which, um, I mean, 90s disaster films are also very good. Um, I don't know if you've seen Hard Rain, but... It's <laughs> It's Amelia's favorite movie, so uh, it's, it's not my favorite movie. It's, it is your favorite. It's an incredible movie, though. Like it is your favorite movie. You should, if you have not seen Hard Rain, see Hard Rain. But I think my problem with '90s disaster movies is that uh, overall, I know the '90s is your whole jam, but it's like for me, they don't have that earnest stupidity of the '70s. You know, 
Um, no, the nineties are sort of edged with it's kind of too meta. Um, yeah. Whereas yeah. in the in the seventies, there's absolutely no concept of like they're just earnestly no. trying. Whereas in the nineties, they're a little bit more cognizant of like what exactly kind of movie they're making. Yeah. But I, no... I I still enjoy the nineties ones because we get incredible sequences like Sylvester Stallone trying to get through a big fan in daylight <laughs> or um or just the entire situation that happens in like Dante's peak I was like, gonna say like in the 90s like you have like a movie uh, like Volcano where there's this whole plot line hinged upon the idea that LA has such poor public transportation and that the working poor have no way of getting to their actual places of work because the rich totally, totally stave off any attempts at creating a sustainable public transportation infrastructure in the city. 25 years later, whenever the hell that movie was made, I mean, it's still an incredibly important pressing issue, again, highlighted by COVID. Uh, there's no sort of rumination on anything like that in the 70s. Nothing. No, but I mean, Nothing. that said, this film did not have a, a sequence of a man jumping from a train into magma or lava at this point it would be lava and then just getting his feet burn off so i mean it's swings and roundabouts you know there's some good in both some bad in both that's true i mean yeah again in the 90s they didn't have michael Caine saying helicopter and eating sunflower seeds for a um, good I, I, four I'm, minutes honestly i'm footage. interested to see the kinds of disaster movies that will be born out of this period of time because it is a period of major structural upheaval for society and this sort of seems to breed that style of movie uh whether it it takes a bit longer because everyone's so overwhelmed um is another matter entirely but I know a couple of people, like I think Jerry Bruckheimer was playing with a pandemic movie. So, I mean, it's interesting to see how that will go and whether it's, you know, appropriate to broach that subject. I reckon the popularity of zombie films will go down drastically, though. Yeah, I have to say, um, as, you know, a zombie movie devotee, as you you all know, uh, love zombie movies. Any form of zombie movie, give me, like, 30s, like, Haitian voodoo zombie, give me 80s physically crawling out of the grave zombie, you know, any of it. I love it all. And I I definitely think there's going to be a a kind of a a swing back on that. I do think it's really interesting, though, um, how much it's this situation has both proven and disproven these like core tenets of zombie mythology, zombie movie mythology specifically, because the movies, as we all know, are what kind of established the modern interpretation of the zombie, which bears no relation whatsoever to the folklore zombie. Um, but that's that's for another episode. No, I, 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 you know, but I think it's also interesting, and it's been remarked upon that there's no great art about the 1918 flu pandemic, and that actually very few major artists ever kind of touched upon the situation at all. Uh, again, the John O'Hara story, the doctor's son, I think is like the only one that comes to mind. At least, for well, me. I mean, that's got like a lot to do with the fact that the overwhelming grief. Yeah. Was centered about uh, the First World War. Yeah, obviously, yeah, you got those competing, you know, near, but who knows, maybe we'll launch into World War Three, and then we'll all just forget about the pandemic. That could always nice. happen. That would be nice. I'd love to be drafted to go fight the African killer bees. Who says we'd be fighting them? They could be <laughs> our secret weapon. I never said that. Okay, Lindsay Lohan, 
about Paris Hilton voice. I never said that. The killer bees are my friend. <laughs> You look beautiful, Lindsay. Why are we tonight, Lindsay? Lindsay, we love you, Lindsay. Yeah. That's enough, man. That's Paris enough. Paris is the cat. I'm sorry, Lindsay, what'd you say? Lindsay, Paris is the what? She's the cat. I love Paris Hilton. What'd you say a second ago about Paris? Hey, y'all. Why is Paris a cat? Lindsay, why is Paris a cat? We, we got you saying a second ago. Tell them 30 days entertainment. Paris is your friend. Do you ever think about the fact there are people born after like 9-11 who like don't know that lore? Yeah, they're on TikTok right now. They're on fucking TikTok right now. And they have no idea. They don't know what a fire crotch is. <laughs> so old. I feel so, so old. TikTok makes me feel ancient. Ancient. Like when these kids are just like talking about something. And I'm like, I've gotten to the point where it's like, I never understood how people didn't keep up with, like, what was on the radio. You know what I mean? Like, I never got that. I'm like, it's all around you. How do you not have any idea what's going on in pop culture? I am now at that point <laughs> where I'm like, who are these people? <laughs> what is going on? You wonder, don't you? Houston on fire. Will history blame me or the bees? Okay, we're back after some technical difficulties. We have no idea what happened. Um, Candace has obviously been playing too much Sims and has eaten up all the space on her computer. Um, well, I deleted the Sims itself, right? Because I needed the space, but I guess I didn't delete the XBIN files. So I had a bunch of like fucking, I had, like 30 gigs worth of bin files, which are useless, I believe, if you don't have the actual game. I'm not good at uninstalling. Things, but I also pirated, I pirated The Sims, so that's why I probably didn't uninstall very cleanly. Anyway, back to what we were talking about. Amelia, out of the 26 tests that Richard Chamberlain said must be performed to determine whether the swarm is in fact composed of African killer bees, how many tests would you give it? I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. So I, was very I asked you out of, out of 26. Oh, 26. That is not a clean fraction. Well, you're asking, much like Joel, I can't add numbers. So out of 26, well, I guess it's getting a 19 out of 26. Seems very harsh. Uh, Candace, how yeah. many dead children on the steps <laughs> of an elementary school would you give this out of, I think there's 12 there? I would give this movie nine and a lollipop out of 12. This movie kicks ass. It was, it was pretty good. We were watching it and we were just like, man, this is awesome. I don't know why everyone fucking hated this, I guess. Because like I said, it tickles all of the exact like dopamine and serotonin like receptors that I get from Roller Coaster, even though there's no George Siegel in it. It's still got Richard Whitmark and Henry Fonda. So obviously that plays a big part in it. But for me, it's like, it's, it's that exact same. I cannot believe this is happening. I cannot believe... Frederick Murray just flew out a fucking window while tumbling down a hillside in a train car that's headed for a fiery, fiery death. I just, fantastic. It was great. So the fact that I have for you uh, is that in an interview, Michael Caine stated that during filming, he thought the little yellow spots left by the bees on his clothing was honey. So he began to eat it. However, huh. <laughs> it was bee feces. <laughs> Oh. Um, and apparently oh. all the cast costumes got covered in bee shit. One, I don't know why you just try to start sucking honey out of your fucking clothes, out of your, like, camel jumpsuit when it's been, you've been filming in it all day, it's covered in makeup and sweat. What are you doing? 
Um, I have a theory there. I have a theory there. <laughs> Michael Caine, as we all know, is a Tory. And I have a feeling that another noted cheapskate, uh, Fred McMurray, said to him, you know, honey costs money. Why don't you get free honey by sucking it out of the fibers of your clothing? And that's why Fred McMurray never made another movie after this. He was just like, I can't he, possibly. The shame. He consumed too much bee shit. You know? <laughs> Talk about a harvest of shame. The harvest of shame that Devin McKinney refers to, little did he know, actually is referring to the amount of bee shit that Frederick Murray harvested out of his own, I believe he's wearing a sweater vest at one point. I hate that. So <laughs> thanks for nothing. <laughs> I'm so glad we could get back recording so I could tell you that. I am so mad. I was like, what is she going to hit me with? And I should have fucking known the fucking bee shit. Wow. <laughs> incredible um it's a great movie you should watch it if you have two and a half hours to spare i will just also say this was ben johnson's second b movie um he made one in 1976 called the savage bees the festive fun of the annual mardi gras celebration is brought to a halt when a swarm of african killer bees escape from a foreign freighter what in the fuck who else is in that i'm not seeing a lot of names i know michael parks gretchen corbett the Savage Bees, yeah, I have to say that's not really the most illustrious cast in the world, but Michael Parks is somebody. That's, wow. Well, we're going to have to watch this. So. <laughs> going to have to watch all the B movies. I, I have been pushing for years for us to watch Eight-Legged Freaks or Arachnids or any of the, you know, spider movies, but Tiff resolutely refuses to watch them. So we'll see. One day I'll push her over the edge. Um, because again, she, like Michael Caine, believes the bees are different. She enjoyed the fly. So, I mean... She should enjoy. She should I enjoy agree. arachnids or whatever it is. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Even if we have to tie Tiff down and make her watch them kind of like in a clockwork orange, <laughs> like that. If there's a movie about giant killer crabs, also that would be good because she doesn't like the leggies. Um, that is true. She does not like the leggies. She does not like the leggies. And then we'll give us some soft shell crab. It'll be great. Great evening. Anyway, thank you for listening. You can tell us what you thought of this episode on our socials, on um, Instagram and Twitter at BasketPod, and rate and review us wherever you listen, because apparently that really does help with, I don't know, the algorithm or something, so other people can find this show. And yeah, I think that's it. Stay safe. Um, we're heading up to Christmas. I hope you weren't part of the Super Spreader event over Thanksgiving and that you're home well. <laughs> um and yeah thanks well i just uh all i had to say is high in potassium low in sodium millions of bees millions of bees millions of millions of bees all right thank you <laughs> thank you thank you goodbye Bye. all right <laughs>